This is Reimagining Higher Education, your go-to podcast with remarkable education leaders sharing personal stories from their experience in and around the sector, including reflection and hope for progress in the sector. With your host, Sir Eric Thomas, former Vice-Chancellor at the University of Bristol, President of Universities UK and Chair of the Worldwide University Network, and now Studiosity Advisory Board Member. Welcome. Well, welcome to our listeners. It's a particular pleasure for me to introduce uh, to you Professor Sir Steve Smith, who is a very long-time friend and colleague uh, as Vice-Chancellor, President of Universities UK. And the subject that we're going to, to really focus on today, Steve, is it, it international students, internationalization. And, and perhaps you might like just to tell the listeners a very brief background to your career and then what you're doing now uh, and why internationalization is such an important issue for you. Well, thanks, Eric. And thanks very much for inviting me to, to have the discussion with you. So um, I trained as a, an international relations specialist and I went off and worked, first of all, at Huddersfield Poly, then at the University of East Anglia. Then I moved over to uh, the University of Wales Aberystwyth and I was head of department there and then deputy vice chancellor. Um, I did 10 years there. And then in 2002, I became vice chancellor of the University of Exeter and I did 18 years there. Um, and of course, Eric, you and I almost exactly coincided in our in our in our tenures. And, and as I retired and, and actually following some very, very good advice that you gave me, actually, I tried to make sure that I had things to do so it didn't just stop um, because that's right. always the issue. And so I got uh, approached to become the government's international education champion um, and also the prime minister's special representative to, to Saudi Arabia for education. And in that role, um, my job is to drive up um, international student numbers to the UK. And rather embarrassingly, the target is 600,000 by 2030. And we reached it last year. So <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> what do we do now? And the other one is international is education exports uh, to 35 billion from 19 billion. And they were, the new figures are out last week and they're incredible. Um, despite the pandemic in 2020, education uh, exports rose by 0.8%. I mean, it's incredible uh, how, how international education is. It's amazing. I mean, I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know what you mean by exports, Steve. Okay. So um, the main element of it is higher education. It's gone from 69% of export earnings to 763 And that's mainly, Eric, that's mainly international students coming to the UK. Right. And in that figure, it's also transnational education taught in other countries, but by UK institutions in collaboration or franchise or distance learning. The other 24% of the earnings are split between schools, um, colleges, ed tech, a massively rising area, massively rising, uh, English language, um, early years, special educational needs. So it's the entire gamut of the things that the UK earns money from uh, in terms of in terms of the education sector. So I deal with my mandate is everything from early years in English language right up to university education. Right. So um, a massively successful export industry. Uh, as well as, uh, and, and I think it's important to bring it uh, early on, uh, decades of soft power 
that comes from this. You know, the number of pri prime ministers globally that have had some form of education in the United Kingdom is quite amazing, isn't it? Yes, and, and as you'll know, Eric, uh, very well, the best ambassadors for, for British education are people who studied here. I mean, it's, you know, we can say anything we want from government or as universities. But if you're actually someone who's come over here, studied, lived in the UK, the warmth for the UK is just phenomenal. And it is one of the most humbling features of, of doing this role. You meet all these alums from countries around the world when we visit and, and they are passionate about the UK. Difficult to put a price on that. But in, you know, you could argue it's even more important in the long run than the than, than the money that we earn. Right. I mean, what I mean, I'm sure many of us have quite a good idea. But what what do you think makes UK education so attractive to international? I mean, it, luck has given us the global lingua franca, for better or worse. Yeah. Uh, but it has. So that surely has to be one aspect of it. But from your point of view, what else, you know, if you were laying out the table of uh, education to attract someone, what do you think it is? that attracts them? Well, that's a great question. And luckily, we've got a lot of evidence on it because um, the British Council do a lot of work on, on what, you know, how the UK uh, compares to other systems. The other main uh, uh, agents and aggregators and the pathway providers, they all look at this. So I was looking just yesterday at some data. The thing that, that um, an IDP in the Crossroads survey, excellent surveys, have, have done quite a lot on this. The main thing is the the number one thing is the quality of, of the institutions and the education. So we do very well on quality of education that you get. We do well on um, the safety of being in the UK, of yeah. the welfare side of being in the UK. We do well at the moment, interestingly, um, on the ease of getting a visa. We didn't used to do very well on that, but we now I do. remember it well, Steve. <laughs> we now do a lot better. Um, cost is not, you know, we're high, but not the highest. Um, but basically people come because of the quality of the university education they get over here. And, you know, that is probably the number one thing. And it's a big issue, as you know, um, uh, to make sure that that's maintained. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I, I will want to explore that with you because... Um, some surveys are showing not worrying trends, but perhaps some international students who are finding that they're not quite getting delivered what they expected as, as numbers increase. I mean, th there's something also wonderfully geographical about it. You know, uh, Heathrow is a maximum of 12 hours from everywhere except Australia. Yeah. And, and actually being in the same time zone or near. I mean, it's interesting in the Middle East and in Africa, the time zone issue is significant, actually. You know, people are quite happy to fly, you know, a two or three hour time zone difference to the UK. Going to Canada or the US or Australia is a very different prospect. So that works for us. But I think also, I think your point about the language is obviously crucial. And frankly, London as a location is, is you know, one of the major cities of the world without any question, which is why very large numbers of international students go to London. Yeah, uh, uh, absolutely. Um, do you think um, 
a, a, a not a common, but a, but but an observation that's made is that sometimes nationalities tend to clump together in universities. And, it, you know, there is a debate about whether they're actually having an international experience or, in inverted commas, a Hong Kong experience, but it happens to be in Bristol. Yeah. I just wondered how much of that you find. Well, I, I think you put your finger on something that certainly when I was Vice-Chancellor at Exeter worried us a lot here. I mean, and we we tried several things, all of which didn't work. You know, <laughs> we you, you give incoming students the choice of where they want to be located. Uh, accommodation wise that's crucial um and you then mix them you try mixing for exactly the reasons you've said and their lifestyles are quite often a little different to the average 18 year old uk student coming to university um so you then get pressures to put put them in accommodation in a slightly different uh, uh, uh place but the bottom line is the danger is if you have classes as you know which is 70, 80% international. Yes. And, and so actually the way I think it's moving and it is moving is I think all universities now are very aware of the need to diversify the number of countries that their students come from. Not, I mean, there's an economic argument for that in case the tap gets turned off, but equally, Eric, you know, it's the whole point of, an, of coming to another country to study is to have an international education. And actually, for UK students, as you know, only 7% of our students study abroad at any point. That's, yes. They need international students to prepare them for the world that they're going to move into, which is an increasingly internationalised employment market. So I think it's a genuine issue. Um, and what I'm seeing is a lot of focus on trying to get an even more balanced intake, as you know, for the last 20 years. It's been one country that's prepared. Yes, I was going to ask you about that, whether whether the demography, I mean, uh, uh, because we were very dependent on Chinese students. You were, we were, uh, the, the system was. And um, the. Uh, I wondered if, if you're seeing a change in the shape of that demography, maybe more from India or more from Africa. I just wondered how it was going. Well, it's really interesting um, because you and I are of that generation where, um, leaderships of uh, our leadership in Britain encouraged us the golden age of uh, the golden era of the relationship between UK and, and China. And in your roles at UUK and in mine, we accompanied delegations. Um, uh, and as you know, it got up to 143,000 Chinese students arriving um, in the UK. The big trend, though, is that's changing quickly, very quickly. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, uh, uh, the number of Indian students given visas for the first time ever exceeded China. Actually, it's worth just pausing for a second, Eric, to think about the speed of that. Yes. When you and I switched as being, you know, uh, president of UUK, uh, that year um, there were 39,000 Indian students. By 2015, it had gone down to 15,000. Um and then over the last four years, it's gone 25,000, 55,000, 85,000, now 97,000. And for next year, China's gone from 143,000 to 116,000. And India's gone to 123,000. And that shift is just phenomenal. And it's post-study work. Nigeria 
you know, 60% increase last year in student numbers. Um, so Nigeria is now 51,000 students. And by post-study work, Steve, you mean that they're able to stay on for a year or whatever the current arrangement is? You're able to stay on uh, for uh, two years after completing your programme or three years after PhD. Um, and that is, it's not the most generous in the world, but it's a lot more generous than it used to be. Um, and so that all the evidence is that once that changed um, in India in particular, and this goes to a deep issue of why people travel to study. And in India, the employment prospects, not necessarily in the UK, but employability generally is massively important. They're looking at what happens to them when they finish their degree. What does it do to their employability? And therefore, um, post-study work was was massively important. And it is worth re recording. Um, you know, Boris Johnson, um, a lot of things have been said, but within eight weeks of him becoming prime minister, the policy changed to, to allow post-study work, which UUK had been pushing for for years. And that, I think, is the big change. I mean, but, uh, uh, it speaks volumes about the reputation of British higher education. I was a Marshall commissioner, and um, we would do get the Marshall students coming across from the United States of America. And, and, and they were des desperate to go to Oxford or Cambridge. I mean, absolutely desperate, because that was the name that they could then take back. And he, even persuading them to go to an Exeter or a Bristol was... Uh, yet, yet it appears that our international students are happy now to... They, they see added value in getting degrees from universities that aren't, in inverted commas, the big name. Yeah, it's, it, that, that's a very acutely important observation, because on the one hand, the cachet of Oxford and Cambridge and of the Russell Group as a brand is just incredible overseas. Um, but the market is now becoming much more sophisticated, actually. You know, if you want to do certain subjects, the best places are often specialist small colleges, yes. universities. A lot of the post-92s have got I mean, the ex-polytechnics, for those who don't know that phrase, you know, universities that, that, that really have, have been called universities only since 1992. Some of those have just got outstanding international provision. And of course, they market it. Because um, one of the things you're finding, Eric, is beyond Oxford and Cambridge, it's a mistake to think there's a lot of brand recognition. Um, what actually determines people's choices are things like the speed of response when they make an inquiry, you know, the marketing that that, that right. goes on. And so if you're if you're a Bournemouth, um, if you're a Teesside, you know, if you're a Sunderland and Northumbria, just take the Northeast for a second of those three, and you're marketing that you're really specialist in this, this, and this, and you get the replies back quickly, you know, they do very well indeed. So international student numbers have gone from 440,000 to 605,000 in two years. Um, and that's spread across the sector. Uh, there's different price points. Um, the, 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 the more selective institutions, certainly Oxford, Cambridge and most of the Russell Group, charge a lot more money than, than others. So there's a price point issue. But frankly, um, and I look at Scotland, Scotland uh, is just doing stunningly well in international student numbers, in part because they are funded less generously for home students 
um, right. than, than in England. So it's a very um, strong uh, across the board uh, market. And, and what we're seeing is uh, institutions that don't have the Oxford Cambridge name, but they're still doing incredibly well because they're very, very good in the subject rankings or in a particular area. And people, you know, if they're thinking about employability, want to study where where the programme is taught really well. Well, Steve, that really begs my next both observation and question, because we're going to have to make sure that we deliver this quality of experience to these internet. Uh, Jack Goodman, who actually founded Studiosity, but uh, has wrote recently in the uh, Australian Financial Review, showing that there's an almost inverse relationship between student feedback and the size and research intensivity of the university. In other words, international student feedback is much more positive for smaller institutions than it is for bigger institutions. And he emailed me this morning and pointed out that uh, there's a certain institution that's got so many international students in this country that they have to accommodate them an hour away in a different city and bust them in. Well, Steve, that's not... I, I wouldn't have wanted to pay a significant amount of money for that experience. No, and um, uh, there's two or three issues packed into that, if I could just unpack them. Firstly, um, there's been... And, and, and listeners may be aware, may not be aware, because of the major inflation in UK grades, there were 25% used to get A's. And mm. then within two years, it went up, A's and A stars, sorry. You, then it's gone up to 44%. So as you know from admissions, institutions have been overwhelmed with home demand and they've got a contractual arrangement if they say, Come to us, Eric, if you get three A's and you get three A's. So there's, there's a, a bulge working through the system um, whereby home numbers um, in the most selective institutions have shot up. Um, right. And that's caused an accommodation problem. And so that, that's the first aspect. Second aspect is that the, the students who are paying most money are going to predictably the highest ranking institutions they are also quite understandably very very concerned about the quality of what they get and so you you know they're they're very informed knowledgeable mobile consumers so to speak um and they will uh, have strong views what we see on the data is actually the uk does stunningly well compared to our competitors on the overall uh, experience when students are asked a year afterwards um right. they rate it very highly i mean we come out top on that um and of course as you know and i know smaller institutions are really good at welfare and what a lot of students want is to feel part of something to feel looked after cared about you know um, and that's always going to be more difficult in a big institution but the trend is really interesting in the Russell Group, the average percentage of international students was 24.9%. Most of them are now looking at 40. UCL is over 50 already, a percent. Right. LSE, which is slightly different, at 70. So you've got, because of the fee issue in the UK generally, and in England specifically, you've got a push on international student numbers um, for a number of reasons, but one of which is, is, is the cross-subsidy that goes on between home students now 
Um, it used to be that international students funded research. Now international students, I think, also fund home students because right. it's a loss being made. So there's a big series of pushes there. But the, the core statement, I think, that matters is that UK as a system does very well on student feedback after the event. Right. Well, that's that's great to hear, Steve, I have to say. Um, the I mean, it's interesting to to sort of discuss with you how sustainable uh, th that A is a financial A is a financial model and B we're in a very interesting time and here I am talking to a, a political scientist but you know where you and I felt that globalization was it yeah. in yeah. in yeah. that decade the first decade of the 21st century, globalization was it. And of course, what Ukraine has done and what lockdown and COVID has done has turned countries a little bit more into themselves. And, um, and it's paradoxical in a sense that against that background, international students are rising because you would argue that you would think that they'd actually stay more into, internally in their own country. I mean, do you... Do you see the general political waves, geopolitically, uh, uh, decreasing internationalization, or is it just it's just too inevitable? So, this is a very deep and complicated issue, and what I'm going to say could be proved wrong very quickly. Um, I mean, the the basic premise I work on is to look at the growth in international student numbers, um, and from memory. In 2000, I think, it, or 2002, I think there were 2 million. Now there are 6 million. And UNESCO predicts that will double within a decade. Right. Um, so the globalization conveyor belt is continuing at one level. There are two big provisos. One, I think there is a regionalization of higher education. Students are increasingly attracted by regional hubs. So if you're in Southeast Asia, Singapore or Malaysia or Hong Kong, maybe not Hong Kong, would look very attractive. Um, and I think that that's something that is a development that we're seeing that, you know, that there's that excellent UUKI uh, publication. Why, are, why aren't we second, it's called. Um, and it looks at the UK's position in all the major markets. And I think from memory again, uh, of the 21 main uh, countries that we recruit students from, um, we are we are declining in our role in about 16 of them. Um, right. We're not we're not you know we're not getting the percentage because they're going regionally. Um, so there's that trend. The other really big trend, and the thing that certainly surprised me most, Eric, and I suspect you'd be surprised by the numbers, is the rise of transnational education. Um, right. If you think about it. Uh, I always thought of international education as students coming here. Uh, now the number has gone to 510,000 students are studying UK degrees abroad, either in collaboration, franchise, distance learning, di campuses. Overseas campuses are only 7% of that. Um, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So it you've got 600,000 coming, 510,000 studying uh, for UK degrees abroad and the pressure from the governments we're talking to um is they're really attracted by transnational education because it's more inclusive it's cheaper 
Um, it's not taking the talent. It's not brain drain. It's actually building capacity. So I think the big change that I'm noticing is the number of conversations that are now about transnational education. We were in Nigeria um, two weeks ago, and there we've just we're working with the Nigerian government on on a new transnational education set of uh, regulations because it's not very attractive to go over to a country and say, send your students to us. <laughs> you know, if you're the Nigerian government, you're worried about losing people. Yes, absolutely. So transnational education, I think, is where a lot of work is going on. And some institutions, just to give you one example, De Montfort, you know, has had a, a bumpy old time over in recent years on UK recruitment. But it's got um, campuses in Kazakhstan. It's got a campus in Dubai. Um, it's got a facility in Vietnam. Uh, it's developing. They're seeing it as a way of being in the international education game or market or league or whatever we call it. Um, and that's very successful for them. And I applaud institutions. Coventry is another one. You know, there's a Harriet Watt. It's yeah. changing. Um, it's not just coming to the UK. I mean, I remember having a conversation with John Hood when he was vice chancellor of Oxford about, about campuses abroad. And his view, and I have to say it was my view in the end, was that the brand of Oxford and the, the brand of Bristol to a degree, but very definitely, was about the place Oxford was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that the brand of Brist Bristol is Bristol because it's in Bristol. Yeah. And that when you, if you put Bristol into Kuala Lumpur, what you were providing was not Bristol; it was something else, but it wasn't Bristol. And uh, but if you're not if you're not that in inverted commas brand sensitive, then expanding your campuses is a sensible thing to do. Yeah, well, that's really this, again. This is a mission critical point because you're absolutely right that Oxford and Cambridge don't go opening campuses. Um, uh, very few, uh, very few world's top institutions do there are exceptions um but if you are an institution that wants to pass on the benefits of a say a bristol education um and you can guarantee the quality yes. and so in other words if if you if i can move from nigeria to to bristol and study um international relations in in bristol and pay my £20,000 a year for three years, that's one thing. If I could do the degree at a partner institution with quality assured by Bristol right, for £5,000 a year, not everyone wants to do that because they do want the Bristol experience. But, you know, if we're concerned about the benefits of higher education, and you and I have talked over the years a lot about social mobility, um. You don't just want higher education to be for the wealthy. No, it's a and, and there's a so there's a there is a tension, and and you're absolutely right to point to it. But um, if you could offer the quality, then there's going to be people that will feel that that's absolutely worth it. And thus, not surprisingly, Eric, one of the big questions all the time when talking to other countries and governments is. Will this be the same quality as they get in the UK? Yeah, interesting. There's one thing: the international students generally uh, have a very reasonably low profile in the United Kingdom, but of course, 
every every time the migration figures come out, the international. Now, I do fully understand the politically sensitive nature of your role, Steve. But you and I have talked to both types of administration about international, both when the Labour Party was in uh, power and when the Conservative Party. And, and international students go home, the vast majority of inter- So why is there this resistance about keep, why are they kept in the migration figures? What, what's driving that? Yeah, so I, I, I must just make the obvious point, and I apologise for doing it. I, I mean, um, because I'm a government, my position is sure. a government position, yeah. I, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sensitivity here. But let me just, let me explain as I honestly, as openly as I can. There is clearly a political issue about migration. Uh, we all know that. Um, and we've seen it, you and I have sat through so many meetings where it's been, you know, the evidence is one thing, but then there's the politics. And I think, I think two big points. Big point one, the data shows that international students come, study and leave. Yeah. The latest data on the 23rd of September this year from Home Office said 97.5% of international students leave before their visas run out. Um, the complication, again, to be completely open, is what's happening with as we're moving away from China. This is really interesting. Chinese students tend not to bring dependents, not to bring dependents. That's the point. If you're, so I saw these data. If you're a Nigerian student, your average age of coming is mid-20s. Oh. And the average age of first child in Nigeria, I read, is 20.9 years. So just add, so what you're finding is almost, there's almost one dependent per Nigerian coming. Oh, um, so the argument is about dependence, I think. The second big point um. And I, I note that, that, that the Prime Minister, as we're recording this, the Prime Minister yesterday said in the Liaison Committee in, in, in Parliament that, um, you know, he wanted the best and the brightest to come to the UK and wanted to encourage it. The, the, the Education Secretary made an excellently clear statement that she wanted more international students from a diverse range of countries. But again, to tiptoe around a sensitive point, if there is a concern that we're too dependent on one country... Mm. And moving away to the next big growth markets, both of those main markets, India and Nigeria, have higher ratios of dependence coming. So that's why it's an issue. Now, to answer your precise question, you and I have argued with government over the years of, of both colours about taking students out of the net migration figures. Um, we saw yesterday, uh, I think, Chair of the Select Committee say the problem is that it would be perceived as being... Um, a, a political trick to get the migration figures down. Um, and I do remember, uh, again, when we were working together, trying to get the then Labour leadership to agree not to make a point if the Conservative government took them out of the figures. But it's too, you know, it was, it was no. politics intervened. So the honest answer to your question um, is that um, UK, the Office of National Statistics, which is independent, says that it's following international practice on including them. Um, and I think it will probably need to be in a manifesto of someone, maybe the Labour Party or Conservative, the next election, to take them out. But at the moment, the good news 
is that despite the noise, um, the policy has not changed and we want to attract the best and the brightest to come to the UK. And my job is to grow international student numbers coming to the UK and in transnational education. And that's not changed. No, and and you are evidently being very uh, successful at it, Steve, which is uh, which is great news. We're coming to the end of our thirty minutes. It's been a fascinating discussion with you about international students and 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 you know the uh, and how the balance of our universities are made up. You know, um, you and I went to university when there was almost no international right. student. I mean, almost none. Yeah. Uh, and now, and now it's now it's a very different uh, demographic uh, background. The uh, we, I did ask if you would bring an object. Did you metaphorically or physically that that uh, did you actually bring one, or have you forgotten to bring one? I forgot about that. I'm awfully sorry. Um, but <laughs> I suppose what I can bring, and um, most important thing to me, is my Norwich City scarf. Uh, which is in this box, uh, which 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 means um, enormous amount. Of, if you if, you know uh, my football still matters, although at the moment it's not so good. Um, but no, I think. And the other thing, just to say, Eric, to finish from my side, I do think to go back to an earlier, very prescient point that was made. You made there is a trend about internationalisation in education, pedagogy, AstraZeneca. You know, mm. uh, when you go to Bangalore and you sit in the place where, um, sorry, in, in Hyderabad, where three billion doses um, of w were made of, of the vaccine, you know, where discovered or worked on in, in, in Oxford, made in, made in India, you know, international research, international education do feel as if they're a conveyor belt of, uh, or, or a train of history. And I think the geopolitics will change that. But if you're not, to use that famous phrase from Jonathan Adams, if you're not in the international game, you're limiting what your institution and your country can be. Well, Steve, on that note, on that perceptive uh, observation, I think we'll bring it to an end. Thanks so much for uh, joining with me. It's great to have a natter with you again. And maybe we should arrange to have this over some good food and wine at a later date next year. I'd love to very much indeed, Eric. And uh, thanks very, very much indeed for inviting me. And as always, really good to talk to you, just like old times. OK. Cheerio, Steve. Thanks Bye, very mate. much. Visit studiosity.com slash students first for the next Students First Symposium, an open forum for faculty, staff and academics to candidly discuss and progress the issues that matter most in higher education.